Now last week as we finished up Matthew chapter 5, Paul made a comment that he knew would cause problems. It had caused problems throughout his ministry. Notice how he ends it. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Put very simply, the law came to tap down sin, but unfortunately, the more laws you pass, the more sin rises up. I mean, every time our our government passes laws, we become more and more lawbreakers because there are just so many of them, you can't keep all of them. But notice the promise of God. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, God simply cannot forgive what I've done. I've had people to say to me, Les, if you knew what I have been and what I have done, you wouldn't like me. Can we all agree that that's true of all of us? Can we all admit that if all of us were to open up our closets and let everyone see what all of us have either thought or done, that we would all be in that category? Of course we would. And if there's anything you leave today hearing, hear this, and that is you can't out the grace of our God. You can't do it. I don't care what you've done in your life. We serve a God who literally overflows in grace. Now, Paul knew that when he said that, there would be some people who would immediately argue, Paul, you are giving people the permission to sin. When you say that we're not under law, you're basically saying it's okay to sin. Look at the very first verse of chapter 6. Why shall we say then, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I suspect it was some of the Jewish Christians. Jews, very likely, who are like Paul, who have been raised Pharisees, who are really struggling with this concept of grace. I mean, they had been devoted all their life to the Torah, to the law of God, and all at once, here comes the grace of God. And I suspect they're thinking, these Gentiles who are coming into the church, we've got to somehow get them heading in the right direction, and you do that through law. But Paul, when you talk about grace all the time, it's as if you're saying to them, go ahead and sin, that grace may abound. And so Paul's got to deal with this issue. I mean, he's got to tackle it. And so in many ways, he pauses. He's been making his argument that we're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're all children of Abraham. But all at once, he's got to pause and deal with this criticism, probably among some even there in Rome. Notice verse 15, same argument. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Same thing you just said up in in verse 1. And so what he does is he kind of pauses in his argument in this book and he says, let's address this issue. What effect does living under grace have in our lives? He jumps in immediately in verse 2, by no means. I I don't like that translation of the NIV, I'll be honest with you. Because I don't see Paul saying, by no means. I see Paul saying, no! I mean, Paul was serious about this. Absolutely not! If that's what you think, you don't understand grace at all. And notice what he says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
We, we have left the world of sin. Now, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew who had, who had been involved all of his life in, in especially the holidays, the celebrations, and among them is the celebration of Passover. And one of the things that Paul had come to a, at least an understanding of was that Christian baptism, and notice he brings it up immediately, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, Paul had kind of fixated on that, that phrase, baptized into Christ Jesus. And he had gone back in his own thinking, and he had looked at the Israelites as the Israelites were coming out of Egyptian slavery, going into the promised land, and, and what they had to do in order to do that. And Paul had made a connection. You see it from 1 Corinthians, written about two years earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he goes back to the Exodus. And he basically envisions the exodus as the Red Sea parts, as the cloud of God is over the top of them. He literally sees that as a form of baptism. And he says, just like the Israelites were baptized as they came out of Egyptian bondage, Christians are baptized. Look at his argument in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. And so he's picturing the scene. Water everywhere. Water on the sides, water up above. And then he uses the very term. He says, they were all baptized. They were baptized. He says, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, they all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. He goes and he literally reads Jesus back, back into all of what happened to Israel. But notice the language. Baptized into Moses. Just as we are baptized into Christ. And the idea there is that there's been a change. A change of status that's taken place. They, they ate the same spiritual food. We just got through eating communion. They ate the manna that God gave. And of course, Jesus basically talks about the manna from God and that he's the bread of life and then gives us the supper to remember that. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Jesus said, you drink from me, you have living water, which ultimately is the spirit of God. And so you see Paul going back and just kind of re-envisioning everything that the Jews had experienced. And so he says, just as the Israelites moved from Egyptian slavery into Moses, Christians moved from slavery to sin into Jesus the Messiah. It is a change of status. Now, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to see something from the message. Eugene Peterson is the one who gave us the message. He's, he's now passed to go into his reward. But, but Peterson had a great comprehension of what Paul was thinking here in chapter 6. Watch the way he translates it in verse 2. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left for good? Now, he's going to make an argument here that's beautiful, uh, powerful. 
But, but here's what's interesting. Let, let me tell you a story that as I was going through this text, I was reminded of. I was doing my first full-time ministry. I was a youth minister in West Tennessee. And in my youth group was this teenage guy who went through an incredible period of rebellion in his life. He was as rebellious as they came. I mean, I would end up over at his house with him and his dad literally in a fist fight trying to referee the two. I ended up taking him for counseling to try to figure out what in the world was going on, only to have the counselor said he's just rebelling. He's doing what a lot of teenagers do. I remember the day that he finally, he was a senior in high school, and he finally had enough. Went to his mom and dad and said, I'm out of here. In the morning, I am gone. He was I'm maybe 18 by that time. It was his senior year. And so his parents said, fine, you leave. Get out. And they said, but here's the thing. Don't take anything that doesn't belong to you. And he said, I won't. Paid for my truck. I'll take my truck. I'll take the clothes I paid for, and I am out of here. And so sure enough, the next morning, he packed up everything in a duffel bag. Out the door he went to get in his pickup truck, and it was on blocks. Jacked up, wheels gone, on blocks. He comes storming in the house. Where's my tires? Dad said, they're not your tires. We bought the tires. You bought the truck. We bought the tires. You can have the truck. You can't have the tires. <laughs> True. True story. He went storming out, walked several miles to a friend's house who, who had told him, you can come live with me. You won't have to put up with your parents. Guess how long that lasted? That boy's mom came to him and said, listen, I have to pay for you because you're my son. I don't have to pay for him. He's not paying any for the water, any for the food, any for the gas, any for the electricity. Get him out of here. And so the boy called his mother up and said, Can I come home? She said, If you'll follow the rules. And so he went home to finish his senior year. I'll never forget, he graduated and he called me up and he said, I want to come tell you some news. And I said, Fantastic. And so he came over to my house and y'all... This is exactly the way it happened. He came up to me and he said, Les, I am sick and tired of people telling me what to do. I've joined the military. <laughs> true. Y'all, true as a heart attack. I sat there and looked at him and I said, There you go. That'll show you mom and dad they can't push you around. Now, y'all, when you join the military, you want to talk about a change of status? We got a lot of people who've done this right here. You've raised your right hand. You've taken the oath of induction into the military. And I mean, when you look at what you have to say, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me. So help me God. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have taken that oath? Would you raise your hand? Look around the room, how many? Let me, yeah, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. But can I say something? The oath we take when we walk into those waters, 
makes this oath pale in comparison. We're not pledging allegiance to the United States. We're pledging allegiance to the God of eternity. And we're not saying that, that we're going to obey the orders of the president and those over us. We say we're going to obey the orders of the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Jesus Christ the crucified. That, that raises us to the highest level imaginable in the world. And it's that that Paul has in mind as he says, listen, can I tell you the status that you've moved from and what you've moved into? Listen to what he says. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into death. Now, those who take the pledge of the United States, yes, they pledge the possibility of dying. But so have all of us. We go into the water and say, you know what? I'm going to die to self. I'm going to be buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too, somehow we have this new life. And, and so many people, when they look at baptism and they say, well, you know, baptism is simply this symbolic act of a decision we made it when we invited Jesus into our heart. There's symbolism in baptism, absolutely. But it's more than that. Baptism is literally an entrance into death where we are buried with Christ and we rise again in anticipation, Paul says, of the fact that since he was resurrected from the dead, we too one day, symbolically raised in baptism, literally raised in the final resurrection. And then look at the language here. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified. Now, I know a lot of us, when we got baptized, we didn't understand that language. I did. I was 11 years old. I barely understood what crucifixion was. And, and by the way, these Roman Christians, Paul says, or don't you know, the, the reality is a lot of them don't. Not like you have to understand all of that, but you are supposed to grow into understanding all of it. And his point is, listen, you were crucified with Christ. Notice, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, we've left Egypt. We left serving Satan. We've crossed through the waters of baptism, the Red Sea. We're on the land of promise side. And it's time we realize the implications of what's involved in that. I love verse 7, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. By the way, death sets you free from everything, except what you've done in this life. You've got, you got to you know, answer for that. But if you've you got a car loan, you die, guess what? You don't pay the car loan. You've got a house note, you die, you're not going to pay the house note. You owe the IRS, you die, guess what? IRS is out of luck. I mean, you can just fill in all the blanks. I don't care what you owe to anyone. Death frees you from all of it. And Paul's point is spiritual death frees us from spiritual responsibilities. We've been set free from the law. And because Jesus was resurrected from the dead and came out of the grave, death doesn't have any majesty over him anymore. He's going to make an argument here that I love. You see, you go in the Bible and you read about all these guys 
who are, are men and women who were, who were raised from the dead. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Eutychus that fell out of the window. You've got all these different uh, individuals. The point about them is, even though they were raised from the dead, they could not prevent themselves from dying a second time. They all died again. But not Jesus. Jesus, when he went into the grave, went through death itself, robbed Satan of the keys of death and Hades, and came out the other side so that death no longer has power over him. And the point that Paul's trying to make is the same is true of us. We sing great theology. I just sometimes don't think we think great theology. There's that great song based on Galatians 2. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Something's changed. And that's the point Paul's making. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the end result, he says, is therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. You don't have to do that anymore. You serve a new master. You're living in a new country. Romans 6, 13 to 14. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. He literally starts looking at the body. And he says, whereas your eyes used to serve sin, no more. Your ears used to serve sin, no more. Your mouth used to serve sin, no more. Now you use your body, notice the language here, near the end, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Why? Because sin is no longer your master. I love the way the message puts it. And, and by the way, the, a lot of the remainder part as we look at chapter 6 is from the message. Peterson nails it. Look at what he says. That means that you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. And we all remember this. Y all, y all, a lot of y'all grew up like me on Saturday morning watching Bugs Bunny. You know, I, I hate that the younger generation is so deprived of Bugs Bunny. I mean, a lot of good theology there. And one of the theologies is those characters would oftentimes have a demon on one side of their shoulder and a little angel on the other side, both whispering in their ears, you know, saying, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And the point that Paul makes is, guess who has the final vote? You do. You're the one who can vote. And he says, you don't give sin a vote in the way you conduct your life now. You don't even give it the time of day. And I love the way Peterson says this. Don't even run little errands that were connected with the old way of life. It's time to get out of it. And time to live a different way. Throw yourself wholeheartedly. In full time, remember you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Now, I know a lot of us don't feel that way. A lot of us were baptized, we come up out of the water, and we're just, I mean, we're, if, if not, we're even more guilty than we were before. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we didn't understand grace. We didn't understand freedom. We didn't understand the fact that once you get your life lined up with God, things begin to fall in place like you could have never imagined before. You see, all of us live under a set of rules. That teenage boy 
Boy, did he understand. And y'all, I got to tell you, let, let me just fill in some of the gaps there. The one who was so rebellious against his parents, I remember the first time he came back from the military. He was a changed kid. First of all, his hair was short, right? I mean, the military right off the bat says, let me tell you how much we're going to control you. You don't even control the length of your hair. I mean, that's how much they control you. And he came back, and he was standing taller, straighter, and, and he somehow learned the words, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. I couldn't figure out where he learned that from. And do you know what he's doing now? He's taking care of his mom. His dad's gone to be with the Lord, but he's, he's moved in to take care of his mom. The one he was so eager to get away from. And now so, so deeply concerned to take care of. You see, he learned something through the military of what it means to live as a Christian. And there is some principles there we could all learn from. But we all live under some set of rules. Every one of us does. I mean, one of, one of the biggest problems in America today is this rugged American individualism that basically says to everyone around, listen, I'm free and you can't tell me what to do. Folks, can I just go ahead and tell you that is the most ridiculous way of living under the sun? Yes, people tell us what to do all the time. You don't believe me? Get out here this afternoon, run 100 miles an hour down Rockland and then down Gallatin Road and see if someone tells you what to do. Because I promise you they will. And in fact, three of them are sitting right back there in the back right now. You don't think someone's going to tell you what to do? Go in the grocery store and say, you know what, I don't like paying taxes. I'm not paying any taxes on my food. Go ahead and try that. Even on $70 worth of candy. Did I say that? I did say that. <laughs> Try that. See what happens. I mean, this idea that, that, you know, I'm free and no one's going to tell me what to do, Paul says that's a bunch of hogwash. He said our choices is to be slaves to sin or slaves to obedience to God. It's only two choices we have. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount puts it as simple as he can. It's the straight and narrow way or it's the broad way. But that's the only two options you have. And the slaves to sin leads to death. You don't want to go there. Whereas being slaves to obedience live, leads to righteousness. And you need to understand righteousness. Righteousness here in the text, Paul is talking about the fact that here's the way God created you to live. You are created to represent and be the image of God in the world. And when you are that, all at once everything begins to fall in place. Look at Eugene Peterson. Well, first of all, this is the NIV. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to holiness, uh, excuse me, to righteousness leading to holiness. NIV basically says here, again, you've got to make a choice, and each one's going to lead to an end result. And then Peterson puts it this way. As long as you did what you felt like doing... Sound, sounds American, doesn't it? Ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. And then I love what he says next. He says, but do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing. Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. One of the things that a lot of us have been guilty of doing 
sitting around a campfire or sitting out with some friends and reminiscing about the life we lived when we were teenagers or maybe in our 20s. Bragging about breaking the law. Bragging about disobeying our parents. Bragging about what we got away with. I've heard people describe it as if it's a badge of honor. Something to be proud of. Boy, if you could just seen the way I lived back in the 60s and 70s when there were no rules. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure God would be proud of you. Paul would say here, really? It was nothing more than a dead end. But now you've found that you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do anymore. You've discovered the delight of listening to God telling you. What a surprise. And I love the way Peterson puts it. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more life on the way. You see, when God says to us, love your neighbor as you love yourself, Love one another as I have loved you. Speak the truth in love. Be kind to one another, forgiving of one another. He's not trying to load us down with more laws. He's trying to teach us about life. And that's the way Paul ends in chapter 6. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension. We've talked about elders' pension. Sin's pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our master. And so here's this pause right in the middle of this incredible book. And he says, misunderstand grace? You can. But if you do, it's not the life you think it's going to be. Because once you live under grace, it's kind of signing up for the military. Once you raise that right hand and take the oath, (laughs) you belong to somebody else. And when you go into those waters and you take the oath, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you belong to somebody else. And his name is Jesus. And he calls you to live for him. I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know if you're still living under the slavery to sin or if you decide, you know what, there's a better way to live, and that's obedience to Jesus Christ. If you haven't been living in obedience to Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? It's time to die, to die to yourself to be buried with Christ in baptism, to be raised again, to live a new life empowered by the Spirit of God. That's what God's calling you to. And if you've not answered that invitation, answer it right now. As together we stand and sing.